Okay, welcome today to today's podcast. I'm joined here with uh, Scott Stevens, Alex Irvine, and we're going to talk about silos in testing. Mainly, Scott is our performance tester, and we've got uh, Alex here. He's uh, test automation, and I do security here, of course. Just want to see where the, uh, the 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 things are that overlap, and the things are that where's a gap. So, guys. Maybe good to do a bit of a round uh, how you guys got into the business uh, and who wants to go first. Hey, everyone's looking at me. We are. <laughs> go for it, Scott. Um, how did I get into the business? The short answer is I'm not 100% certain anymore because that was like 15 or 16 years ago. Um, I was basically throwing a copy of Load Runner one day by a previous employer who said, learn this and you'll become a performance tester or engineer and he was he was quite wrong on that there's uh there's a lot more to it than that but um that's that's pretty much what it is i was assaulted outside a dark alley by load runner and here i am right how about you alex how did you get into uh, the test automation into well testing first of all i'm of the age where nobody came into testing deliberately people uh, fell into testing completely by accident because their organizations needed someone to do some testing. Uh, and I didn't work on time. Uh, I, I wore a shirt that was usually ironed and uh, was reasonably okay at my job. So they said, hey, you, go into national office and uh, and do some UAT. Uh, first thing I said was, what's that? Um, then I discovered testing was kind of cool. Uh, and I really loved the difference between learning what a system does, what you have to do for your job, and how it did it. Uh, and that was a, a bit of a light bulb moment for me. So that was nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, discovered I really loved the analysis and design part of testing, but execution was only fun the first time. So you write a test, design it, it's pretty cool. Do some stuff, find a bug, raise a bug, bug gets fixed. So then you have to run the test again. Then you find another bug. So then you have to run the test again. And by this point, I've seen these screens. I've pushed these buttons. I've filled out those forms. I'm, I'm really bored. Uh, back then, the only cool thing we could do with our desktops was change the wallpaper. And uh, so I was doing that seven times a day. There had to be a better way. If I knew what I wanted to do in the system and what it should do in response, I could get a machine like that. Uh, and discovered that other people had had the same thought uh, because test automation's been around for a very long time finally managed to get into that and uh and it's good fun i now get to build things and more than that get to help other people build. what i find interesting when i talk to you guys outside of the podcast of course um we always talk about how the systems are layered you've got your data application stack infrastructure network the whole shebang that needs to work together to deliver that 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 end user experience so to speak when you look at functional testing it's all about the end user experience we work with that, but we also need to be able to analyze the layers underneath. Yep. And how does that work for performance, for example? Um, well, I think, you know, going back to the, the end user experience, um, it's one thing Alex usually jokes about is you watch a performance test to try to open the door or operate an elevator, and we just don't know how to do it, right? Because I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's quite terrifying because there's a user interface. And in the world of performance, that user interface only exists in so far 
for us to sort of like scaffold the data that we're pushing into the system off. For us, the, the real experience begins just below that UI layer and all the way down through the stack, including network, database, um, as, as granular as you need to get to try and find out what the problem is. Usability of the system, we might make a few comments on it when we're scripting it that this is, guys, you know, really, do you need to go through six different screens to do this? It would seem to be more efficient than... Oh, user yeah, experience yeah, design. Yeah. We need to get a user yeah. experience designer on the podcast as yeah. well. It'll yeah, be interesting yeah, to see you guys out. duke it out. Yeah, yeah. It's like, can you user experience design something for performance testers, please? Yeah, that and, would be great. For us, that would just be basically one form on a white screen where we just need to enter the yeah. data and press the submit button, and would be quite happy with that. It's like using an API. Yeah, that, yeah. that would be yeah. better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would quite like humans to have a REST interface. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I think we need to wait for Elon with that uh, that brain chip of his. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff moving around in the AI space right now. Yeah. Um, I've had some some chats with people on how how do you do security testing on that, for yep. example. But I'm also interested in how to do performance and test automation with that because there's a new role um, and that's called prompt engineering that I've been looking into a lot. And it's super interesting is how can you pull the stuff out of an AI without it misinterpreting what you say? Yeah. Because bad output is usually being misinterpreted or the ingestion was wrong. Yeah. Um, what do you guys see with the challenges of, of going into the AI space with, with your practices? I mean, it, it will be relevant, I think, in maybe two or three years from now, maybe sooner. I don't know. Yeah. I, I haven't seen people testing AI, but I have seen people consuming AI models using them in their tests. And at the moment, it feels like a very black box kind of testing. Uh, my problem with that is that uh, a comment I made years and years ago that I'd quite like to repeat is that if you don't know what's going to happen, you're not testing. You're guessing. You're hoping. You might have some ideas, but if you don't know exactly what's going to happen, you certainly couldn't automate that. You couldn't script it. Not Never without... been in a situation where you just didn't know what would happen? How did you deal with that? Then, then the tester comes out and you experiment and you poke a little more. Uh, there's a really good XKCD cartoon, uh, which he attributes to a scientist. He pulls a lever and gets struck by lightning. Uh, and the, the scientist then says, oh, I, I wonder if that happens every time. Pull the lever again. I would replace the scientist with tester. Yep. So you want testers to again. be struck by lightning? Well... How else do you know? Um, you've, you've, if oh, you yeah. have got a black box, you're going to have to poke it a lot to try and understand real cause and effect to try and figure out what's inside the box. And it can be difficult. You might get struck by lightning. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting thing that you raise because um, black boxes and performance, it's, it's what we see on almost every single engagement. It's like, can I see your architecture? What monitoring have you got? How is this thing put together? Um, and typically, it's a case of, well, we don't have any monitoring. Or we do, we're just not going to give it to you. Um, mm. Do you have any application logs? Well, we might, we don't know. And if we do, we're not going to give them to you. So as Alex said, it's like that case of you poke the black box and you've got a whole lot of heuristics in the back of your head that you've seen before. And then you can go back to the client and say, well, when I've seen a response time pattern diverging like a, yeah. like a railway track, then there's some queuing in there, whether it's at your database level, whether you don't have enough threads on your, um, 
web server or application service flow, that's what it is. Um, so it's, it's almost leading the client to open that black box up through, I guess, a little bit of pain. <laughs> yeah, lightning. Yeah, I've got the same same thing with security, but usually we do ask those questions to say, would you like us to look at the configurations of the platform and everything? Is, is the platform new? Um, and then it's, it's, it's more, more often than not, we have to figure out how everything's stitched together because it's all in the head of one engineer or one developer. Um, but once you get in front of the right person, you get a reasonably clear picture how it's put yep. together. Um, but it's, it's, it, it, there's something that I like to highlight with security is like, okay, who's going to maintain it later? Because you need to know how this stuff is put together. If something breaks, root cause analysis, you name it. And that's nice. that's from from an um, uh, availability perspective. You know, confidentiality, availability, integrity. Availability perspective in security is very important. But usually, it when you do penetration testing, you only look at the application, uh, and sometimes they want to bundle in like a secure config review or something like that. Yeah, you're also hitting the difference between development and operations. Yes, yes, but that that's also where a gap is. Very much so. Yeah. And most development teams don't have the right mindset to think about operations. They don't understand the impact of what they are going to push out the door to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, there's also supposed to save the world and fix that. Yeah. If you do it right. But I don't think there's a lot of organizations that have that maturity level to to no. get it get it down. No, um, if you if you install Jenkins, think of DevOps. Yeah. All very well and good, except that a lot of these places probably aren't monitoring the thing after it goes live anyway, right? Okay. Yeah, there there are some stories there. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Monitoring through Facebook works oh, really well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the website is now. Guess what? Yeah, you hear it from your client. Perfect. Precisely. You've got he monitoring does a good job of making that work. Yeah. yeah. Oh look, I um worked on a client site that had no monitoring for their uh, public facing banking application and the monitoring is basically someone sitting there looking at the Facebook feed and when people started complaining that's how they knew that the site had gone down. At least they've got some form of well, precisely there. right. Yeah. And it's it's got like the, the, the double check that the person checks it before well, it passes. And the nice thing about using Facebook to do your monitoring is you know the Facebook platform's quite scalable. So yeah. you know yeah. that's that's, yeah. that's quite it's quite robust. Yeah. But it, do you think Facebook is tested? Properly performance tested? I think so. So um, I, it's my one claim to fame. Yeah. Is that I have met the person who used to do capacity planning for Facebook, and she's she's amazing. The That's stuff cool. that they did was just next level. Um, Got some gems in there. I want to hear some. Well, gems. they they were um, they were getting to the stage on their global infrastructure that they were monitoring processor queues on individual cores on their servers and they were pulling in all this data in near real time, throwing it into R. And when they saw processor queues on, you know, like maybe one core on one blade, they'd swap it out and put a new one. They built a lot of their own stuff um, from scratch. It was just absolute next level kind of thing. Um, even down to monitoring the power consumption of various data centers. So. Yeah, when there were the big snowstorms in the states, knowing that they could shift load off of one data center onto the other data center to reduce power consumption in that area, so it was available. I mean, uh, this is it's next next level stuff. Yeah, the weird thing with that is data centers 
could also be used for heating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and they did in a couple of cases. Everything's connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how about you? War story, uh, war stories. I used to have a whole lot, and then I got old and I forgot them. You've got a really good um, one. Do I? Yeah, to do with Arduino. And stuff. <laughs> okay, <laughs> tell tell me. Tell me. Uh, I, uh, how do I do it without incriminating guilty? Call the guilty Sam or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, hopefully a fairly unique story. But I, I've over the years done a lot of interviews with people that that are engineers, automators, uh, and they want to come and join wherever I am, join my team. And there's a bunch of fairly standard interview questions that everybody asks. But one that I quite like is asking people about challenges, things that have been hard. What's a, what's a project that you really enjoyed, uh, solved some significant problems, and got that satisfaction for doing this really hard thing, figuring out a way. Uh, so one day, uh, Guilty Sam was working for a company that was a consumer of Alexa, which sounds well and good. And uh, the other interviewer with me had also done some work with uh, IVR platforms, uh, voice yeah. recognition. Yeah. Um, the usual bringing up a contact center and uh, I'd like to order a pizza, please. Ah, one burger, a pizza, that kind of thing. But yeah, uh, voice recognition, tricky. So yeah, yeah, no, we get that can be make me kind of hard. You've got different accents and and other local words for things. Sure. So um, so what was really hard? He said, yeah, no, the getting the stuff off the printer was a real problem. Wait, <laughs> you're testing voice recognition, but you need to get some printed output from a. No, okay, sure, no, no, carry on. Just meanwhile, lots of warning lights going off. You know, the, <laughs> the physical output from the printer is completely irrelevant. That's a printer problem, not a anything else. You could print a file, you could do text scraping from the file. You, you don't need a printed piece of paper, but we'll let you carry on. Yeah, because the printer, the printer in the office, you've, you've got to swipe your card. You've got to authenticate to use the printer. Um, so that you know you get your printed stuff and and not Scott's because if Scott sent something to the printer, then he can swipe his card or put his pin in, and then he'll get his. And I don't want his; I want mine. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I I suppose that 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 could be really complicated. How did you How did you solve that then? I've I've got another another friend and he's a he's a real engineer. He he can do things with like mechanical stuff. So we got we got an Arduino and a stick, and we put the swipe card on the stick, so that every time we sent something to the printer, we'd send the instruction to the Arduino and it would it would activate. <laughs> the card would swipe on the swipe card reader and Genius. and then it would print. Yeah. Um, mm, we didn't make him an offer, but but like I could see some security issues with that. Massive, yeah, yeah. massive. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's massive issues with 
testing and people testing the wrong thing, mm-hmm. not recognizing that, for example, physical output was if they wanted to make sure that the right words were being heard and translated by the system, you don't need paper. You could do that probably at runtime. You could capture the screen, stream uh, and analyze that. Yeah. Worst case, print a file, OCR it, so that you've got a script then and, and get a robot to do the reading, whatever you like. Record the sentences. Yep. You yep. could have an end-to-end automated test for that. Mm-hmm. Don't need paper but people do quite often test the wrong thing or they they have the wrong understanding of what they're testing so mm-hmm. they're checking at the wrong point so we have a security issue mm-hmm. by having a robot unattended swipe guard um it could be really handy if you've got like a color printing budget not a robot. Used, yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah um another swipe card right there sure print print um Performance issues with having to queue documents to a printer? Who? Run out of resource somewhere. Yeah, particularly if you've got a test that's hoofing them through faster than the person. Um, and the, the thing I like about that story so much is it's a technically brilliant solution to a non problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the, the thought process that went behind that, fantastic. You just needed to bring it down, maybe a couple of levels of the architecture to yeah. realize there's a much simpler way of doing Solving the wrong problem. Yeah. It's amazing that people go that far and not realize, yeah, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. You know, that, that kind of moment. You should have that more often, like at least five times a day, maybe six. So that perf as well. The, you know, it takes a long time to clear a 40 to 50 gig Java heap. Yeah, you should never have to clear a it, 40 to a 50 lot. gig Java heap. Yeah. But on this particular instance, they do because the way the application was written, that's just what it needed. And that heap size has to get up by 10 gig every year to avoid doing a, a GC on, on a critical process. Now, this organization has one server with a ton of memory quite literally, which they upgrade every year at one hell of a cost. And it comes back that thing shouldn't just drop. <laughs> Wouldn't that just be cheaper? If that's... But it works. But it works, right? Yeah. And, and that's the yeah. thing, right? Yeah. It's interesting how, how root cause, um, it brings me back to the beginning, is, is something that we all face. Yep. Root cause analysis and how often that goes wrong. Yep. Uh, so. That's kind of the common thing with the security performance test automation is, is find the root cause because a lot of interesting fixes come up that don't fix a thing. And yes, it's always DNS. That's, that's kind it's, of, yeah, it's, always it's always DNS. DNS. Yeah. It's DNS. Yeah. Yeah. So well, what about the, the differences? Where are the gaps? Because I've worked with you together on a couple of projects where we used performance scripts to push it through our toolkits to find stuff with APIs. Yeah. And automate some of those APIs as well in, in, in security tests. Yeah. Um, so that was a big win for the client back then. I uh, was really happy with that result. Basically sped up the whole security testing in half the time. Um, with, with test automation, I see a similar um, pattern that could exist and just weaving security into that. Absolutely. And you can also automate performance scripts to run, for example. So it all ties together. Yeah. There, there are stacks of tools that will take a 
functional automated functional test uh and then scale it yeah. and you've been able to do that for a long time and it that depends on what you want to measure and again are you measuring the right thing are you actually measuring what you think you're measuring um potentially solving the wrong problem this is where i'm giving alex side eye <laughs> <laughs> yeah from a security perspective i think that in functional automation there is quite a history of uh i think poor awareness uh there's bad practices lazy habits uh from a security perspective in the scripting yeah uh, i i travel about and see what other people are doing i will look in their repositories look at their code their automated tests and almost guarantee i will find some plain text credentials yeah or or tokens or secrets or whatever yeah i've seen it almost too. always and it, it's something that i find super annoying when when you look at developers they're 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 very keen to push everything into into their GitLab, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. including all the secrets. Um, and, and there's so there's so many tools out there, defaults and you name it, yeah, uh, to prevent you from doing that. But I think it's also a bit lacking in in education. It's not some. It's not necessarily a lot more time to do it right. And often it will save you a lot of headaches in the end. Got like sixty scripts and all of them use the same token, and you have yep. to edit sixty files. To fix that token, just have them all point to that key vault, yeah. and it will save you time again. So just just don't work hard, work smart and hard kind yeah. of thing. Understanding is the first step. Right? That you, is the you first have to step. Be yeah. Aware of what good security practices are yeah. in your code, but then you've got uh, security practices in your environment. Is your test environment yeah. a full unobfuscated cut of production? Most often, generally, yes. yes. Yeah. Should it be? No. Are there some really good reasons for not doing that? Yeah. Yes. Very Should good it reasons. be legislated? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Well, you see the differences now uh, in, in Australia. I mean, we're now in New Zealand, um, but there's a lot of um, uh, Australian owners of New Zealand companies that are quite worried with how stuff is being done here. And that's why we see quite a bit of an uptake in a lot of remediation work that's coming in. Um, because the the new laws there say you get $50 million or one-third of your annual revenue uh, is going to be defined if you have a huge data leak, uh, and it's just because of negligence. So, And there's probably less security around your non-production environments. Uh, oft, often it is because it's expensive to have that extra licensing, licensing fee for your SIM and having people look at that as well. So it's it's when I do a network pen test, uh, I usually try to figure out where they hold their uh, uh, the their, the clone of their <laughs> crown jewels, and that's in the test environment. Yeah. And basically, you walk in there, you take it all, you run out, and yeah, congratulations, guys. Um, you just got popped, and you didn't even see it. Nice, nice scene you got there. Um, try hooking it up to where the data actually lives. And that, that's, I think, a big gap in thinking because it's tests. We only have yeah. a few people that can get in there. But when you have a test account with test password as a password. It's very easy to get to that data, yep. um, and then it brings me back to GitLab having secrets and tokens yep. in there. And, um, yeah, and then you have exciting things too that if you interact with that there an API, um, yeah, like a REST index, and you can see the query that's getting sent, and it's like, well, what just happens if I put a star in? Oh, and then mm-hmm. you get a dump of the whole database like thirty minutes later, and this massive JSON. Thing. And it's like, nice, that's everything. 
That's the five minute uh, TCP timeout. Uh, yeah, yeah. At least that. But it's a security um, feature nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But from my point of view, that's really good. Finally, test data feedback in my scripts. It's like, hey, I've got the whole database now, so I can start poking it back in. Um, so do you flag it? Oh, yeah. it's actually a functional yeah, yeah, requirement no, that you yeah. need to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, it was flagged on one client site because the test environment and production shared the same blade. And when you do a, basically a select star, um, the test environment consumed every single bit of resource and brought production down. So yeah, that was that was flagged that maybe some control. I've seen that, that actually happen when I was doing um, some penetration testing. I was doing um, uh, pen testing on an app, and we were going through like like just credential stuffing. You know, just trying to log into the test system. Suddenly, is why can't we log into anything else on the network anymore? Because the Active Directory they had on-prem was doing the test environment as well as production. Yeah. So it basically me poking one system and just going apeshit on that yeah. allowed me to bring down the entire net. Couldn't log in, couldn't do anything. Uh, applications broke as well uh, because they couldn't reach the Active Directory anymore. The thing was just completely overloaded. You'll be all right. So that's some security testing that triggered a performance problem that yes. had a functional impact. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I, uh, by the way, I'm getting a lot of stuff because our tools, like, they open 10 channels and it just go, yep. whoop, here oh, you go, uh, full speed ahead and just wait until it's closed again and open up the next one and go as fast as you can. Um, and I've seen it happen with uh, a lot of engagements that we hit those performance bottlenecks right away. Like the first ten minutes. Oh, why am I getting error five hundred only on this API? And uh, just um, so it's really close again. Yeah. But then again, you take a more structured approach and figure out from yeah, an yeah. end user perspective what and, might um, happen. And this is where I'm going to pick a fight with Alex. Here we go. Yeah, go yeah, yeah. Um, about reuse of automation assets for the performance. And I think if we make an assumption that those automation assets are as scalable as performance testing assets. We just assume that they are, right? The approach on how you drive load in for performance testing is very different to the approach to automation. And the reason why I keep banging this drum is I have seen someone use an automation approach in performance testing before, where it's like you just bang an arbitrary amount of load and against an API, yeah. one single API call, and then productionize it. And then you do the same thing with your next API, the same thing with the next API, and in production, your performance is actually bottoming out mm -hmm. because the person who decided to do this didn't realize that under peak, all of these APIs actually have to operate together mm -hmm. under a specific pattern. Usually also shared resources shared underneath Shared resources them. Yeah. and you know, each one of those APIs takes a certain amount of time to ex, um, execute, get the data latency, back to it needs. Yep. So it's got latency there. And what was happening in production is because this was never taken into account. I'm, I'm not going to blame the automator for that, though. That's poor workload modeling. It's, the performance test is And you see, but this, this is the thing. <laughs> Pick the right scripts. But in a lot of organizations where you go and it's like, oh, we've got automation scripts and we performance tested it just by running insert arbitrary load here across all of them at the same time and it fell over or it didn't fall over that's a case of well that that result is meaningless yep. you need yep. to know 
what your application has to so do. So that's that's again doing something, thinking that you're testing yep. A, and that your result yep. means B. Yep. When it doesn't at all, you've done a thing, but it isn't what you thought. Yeah. Actually, your result means banana. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and but you've got a printed piece of paper in your hand, yeah, so exactly. it's okay. Exactly. So have you heard of the term design thinking? Yes. So that's actually what, what should be a requirement for all of these type of practices. You need to be able to you look at a GUI and you need to be able to assess based on how that, that website is going to be used, yep. uh, who's going to use it from where it's going to be used. You need to be able to create a mental image of a rough architecture, that stuff that lies on it. Will they go through to a SQL server? Are they going to use NoSQL in a Cosmos database, whatever? Uh, is this based on um, uh, Lambda functions or is somebody just running a Linux box with, yeah. with a LAMP deployment? Yeah. Yes, we've seen those and it's still quite popular. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, don't get works. me wrong, it, it works and it, it can be bloody fast. Um, but yeah, is it this flexible? I don't know. Um, it actually segues into something else that no yeah. matter whether you are performance automation or security, and this leaps back to root cause analysis, the key thing that you have to have in your personality is curiosity. You know, that desire to see, I have seen this pattern. What hypothesis can I come up to explain it? What other test can I design? How does this actually work? How does work? this actually yep. work? Where is it? Rather than, you see it in performance all the time. Someone comes back with a report that says the system's slow. And it's like, well, what do you do? <laughs> you know, I mean, chances are the client already knew it was slow. That's why you're there. What they need to know is why it's slow. Where is it slow? What can be done or what has been done through the performance test engagement to help remediate that slowness? You're there to tell a story. Yeah, you need to be able to, to dive into the architecture yeah. and just put your finger on and this is where it hurts. Yeah. And that, that's the big trick. And for my grumpy old man thing, I don't know what they're teaching the kids in university nowadays. Same here, same here. <laughs> well, I went to university and learned to play airplanes. Didn't do any of this IT thing. I but think you did figure out how an airplane works. I, yeah, of. yeah. I mean, you push forward, sheep get bigger. Yeah. Pull back, sheep get smaller. <laughs> Pull back too much, sheep get bigger again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's and then they get smaller again. Relatively straightforward. Yeah. Uh, something that keeps coming up is architecture. Yeah. I think that it's poorly understood and the, the difference between uh, solution architecture the and, different layers and of architecture, system yeah. design yeah. and what impact they have on security and performance yeah. and functionality. Yeah. So I'm, I'm old school. Uh, I was trained in the CC Catalyst method and it's like you start with conceptual. Of course, you've got yeah. your architecture engagement at the top. And you dive into conceptual. It's just a conceptual thing of what does this thing need to do? Who are going to be the operators, et cetera? What kind of SLAs do we need, et cetera? That defines the logical architecture. Then you're talking about database, not, not so much MySQL or Cosmos or whatever. Um, database, web server, application stack. We need to be able to do this because we need to get to the conception. Well, we want to get out of this. And then you go into the physical level. And that is where you go with the brands, the sizings, the, the network connectivity, IP addresses, and you name it. Yep. I only see like people talking about high-level, low-level design. What the hell is that? 
what is a, what is a, what in, in detailed designs is what you also have. What I also love to have is a data flow diagram. Just want to yeah. see how everything traverses yes. through the system. Very important. Yes, those are That's part of it useful. as well. But the, the, just the physical design architecture is great to have for us. That's something we're really looking for. But unfortunately, most designs stop at the, the logical type of level. Maybe they have some physical components in there, but beyond that is engineering judgment and they can figure out how to stitch it together on the fly. Yeah. And you talked about it at the start. Have we got any architecture diagrams? Have we got any logs? How is this thing actually put together? How does it work? On functional requirements, yeah. I'll get you a meeting with Jeff and you know, Jeff walks in and he scribbles something up on the whiteboard and it's like, this is it. So, well, well, he'll what, be the what, enterprise what architect mean? though yeah, and that yeah. will be the very big picture. Yeah, yeah. It's the conceptual level. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, so that's, that's good, but where where is it <laughs> so yeah it's it's very frustrating okay so how can ai save us all uh, so <laughs> I'll, I'll just put this in the i for one welcome our ai overlords okay if, well it's on the record listening. now yep. yeah yep just, just so yep. so we know um can ai save us i i i don't know in terms of this See, I think it's an ex it's exceptionally exciting to see yep. what's happening right now in that space and an amazing result. Um, I don't think we should be blindsided by how cool this stuff is um, because there are a lot of bugs to iron out, a lot of issues with it. But how do we know? Oh, yeah, exactly. Back to question one. How do you test an AI? Yeah, and then we're into circular logic again. Very much so. Uh, to, to try and recognize bias, in testing for something that can like be an AI yeah. uh, is really important, but it's very difficult. Humans aren't good at it. Maybe it's interesting to um, to schedule in the next podcast somebody that knows a bit more about AI to educate us mm. um, and just to have have a better understanding of what's what's happening in that space right now, especially when we're talking about quality engineering testing yeah. as a whole. Um, security, of course, part of that performance, you name it. So uh, I think we'll leave it at this, uh, this high note here. Yep. So uh, let's close this off. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and see you next time.